Now, while it is specifically applied here in our passage to the eating of food that has been sacrificed to idols, the principle is to be applied beyond this particular issue. After all, we have no experience in being in a culture or a custom or a religion that knows anything about a sacrifice, let alone one that would be sacrificed to what would be considered an idol. So the issue that this section is going to address for us is this. How far does Christian freedom go regarding behavior not specifically forbidden in Scripture? Let me repeat that. How far does Christian freedom or Christian liberty go regarding behavior not specifically forbidden in Scripture? So during the last several generations, some of the strongest and fiercest debates that have raged amongst fundamentalists and evangelicals has centered around what is called questionable practices. Some might call them doubtful practices, but they are practices that many believers feel to be wrong, but are not specifically forbidden in Scripture. So some of the key issues that have been debated throughout the last several generations is the drinking of alcoholic beverages and smoking and playing cards and wearing makeup and dancing and sports on Sunday and style of music and what is appropriate for a woman to wear or not to wear. Should I go to the theater or should I go to movies? And the list really goes on and on. And the reality is this. There's many, many specific behaviors that are not identified within the pages of Scripture that would strictly be forbidden. So one reason, one reason Christians have spent so much time arguing those issues is because there is not a chapter and verse that says, you shall not. And so the challenge is deriving from God's Word principles that guide us into that behavior that isn't as clear to us as we would like for it to be or would need for it to be, to be able to say, with great authority, God says you should not do that. So it's not that these and many other similar issues are not important, but we cannot speak to them authoritatively like we can things related to slander or murder or stealing or adultery or gossiping or covetousness. These things are strictly forbidden in Scripture, and they're clear for us to find and to read. Both the Old and the New Testament mention many things that believers are prohibited from doing, and both Testaments teach many things that are always good for believers to do. Things like loving and worshiping God, loving our neighbor, helping the poor, and on and on the list would go. These specific things are black or white, Right or wrong, these things that are specifically addressed in Scripture. Many behaviors, however, are not commanded. They are not commended or forbidden in Scripture. They are neither black nor white, but they are gray. Now, this creates a lot of challenge for a lot of people because I think we prefer that there be no gray. We want it to be clear. We want it to be concise. We don't want to factor in human reasoning and logic and all the other things that are necessary when we talk about issues that are considered to be gray, like smoking and dancing and, and sports on Sunday, etc., etc. 
So these issues that we find in a certain age or in a certain area may not be the same as those in another place in another age, but every age and every place has had to deal with the gray areas of Christian living. So Christian liberty is a central truth of the New Testament. We would read this in John chapter 8, 31 and 32. Jesus said, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Likewise, Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 3.17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now, liberty or freedom is most generally applied to salvation that man enjoys. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. You don't try to live up to it. You certainly don't deserve it. And so we have been freed from the requirements of the law and have found freedom through the sacrifice of Christ so that we can enjoy what God has blessed us with in this thing we call liberty or freedom as it reflects to living out our lives under the grace of God. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that here in just a second. So there are two common extremes that are often followed in regard to these gray areas. So where Scripture is absent in saying, Thou shalt not, we have these gray areas. And there's two common responses to these gray areas. The first one is legalism. Legalism believes that every act, every habit, every type of behavior is either black or white. Legalists live by rules rather than by the Spirit. They classify everything as either good or bad, whether Bible mentions it or not. They develop exhaustive lists of do's and don'ts, and doing the things on the good list and avoiding the things on the bad list is their idea of spirituality no matter what the inner person is like. So to rephrase that, if you do, 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 don't, 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 you are a spiritually pleasing person to God, even though you may not even confess to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You know in your heart as hearts, you're as lost as a dog, but you ascribe to this moral code through a rigid course of legalism, and you consider yourself... To be righteous. By the way, that is called self-righteousness. It is not the grace of God that makes me righteous. It is the life that I live. It is my adherence to the list of do's and don'ts that makes me a righteous person. And when I do that, to a degree that is higher than you, then you know what? I am more righteous than you. And it's a legalistic way of looking at life and God and salvation and everything that relates out of the Bible that is not clearly specified as a do or a don't. So those who live by this legalistic approach are controlled by the law and not by the Spirit. But refraining from doing things is not spirituality. Walking in the Spirit is spirituality. Isn't that right, Greg? You know what we talked about yesterday at the men's breakfast? It's exactly right. So legalism stifles freedom, it stifles conscience, it stifles the Word, and it stifles the Holy Spirit. So that is the one extreme and how people tend to deal with the gray area. The second extreme is license. 
This is the flip side of legalism. Now, like legalism, it also has areas that would be considered gray, but there really isn't too much in the way of black. There is black and white, but there's really not a lot of black. It's really dominated by white because the gray areas have been moved by my own license to be acceptable and able to be followed without any problem. Now, almost everything in this, in this context is white. Everything is acceptable as long as it is not strictly forbidden in Scripture. So advocates of this extreme position believe that Christian freedom is virtually absolute and unqualified. That means that if it isn't strictly forbidden in Scripture, I can do it. And you can't tell me that I can't do it because I have a license of freedom that my salvation gives to me to live my life however I want unless God strictly says, Thou shalt not. So as long as your own conscience is free, you can do as you please. Now what's the problem with that? You know, in certain places in our own country, an individual's conscience would tell them it's okay to take that from that person because they don't believe it. They don't really need it. They've got a lot more of it. I would benefit from this. I will do great good with this. So our conscience becomes our spirit in guiding and dictating what we do and don't do in these areas that aren't strictly forbidden in Scripture. So, this seems to have been the philosophy of the group of people that Paul addresses here in 1 Corinthians 8 through chapter 10. And they probably agreed with them that believers should always maintain a blameless conscience before God and before men. But that word conscience there is going to mean something different to somebody who is legalistic and somebody who is under the guise of free license to do whatever I want to do. So beyond that, however they wanted, excuse me, so beyond that, however, they wanted no restrictions. I know I need to have a clean conscience between God and man, but I don't want any other restrictions placed upon me. Paul teaches that it can also be wrong to offend the consciences of fellow believers when they are less mature in the biblical word that is used is Greek, and the way that we would apply that understanding is less free, and when we are doing what is not necessary in our service to the Lord. So if we have great freedom to live our lives however we deem, and we have no concern about how that freedom might affect a less mature brother in the Lord, the one who operates under this guise of license is going to do whatever they want, but Paul is going to say, but is that really necessary in your service to the Lord? So, I'll give you an example. Let's say for for example, and, and I'll just use myself so it's not pin something on someone you think I'm talking to you directly. Let's say, for example, that I have freedom to drink a beer. And you see me pulled up to the corner of Johnny's Bar and Grill, and you see me slamming them down, what's going to be your perspective of that? Well, look at that. Our pastor is just like all the heathen drunkards that visit Johnny's Bar and Grill and every bar in all of the world. How dare he live his life such a way? 
So if I felt like I had the freedom to drink a beer, I would need to make very sure that in doing so, I would not offend the conscience of somebody who might see that, who wouldn't understand the quote-unquote freedom that I had and drinking a beer. Now, you can take that example and apply it to so many different parts of our lives. So the question would be, well, Pastor, is your drinking of that beer at Johnny's Bar and Grill necessary in your service to the Lord? Uh, well, you know, I really haven't thought about that. Well, this is what Paul is saying. You need to think about that. Because your freedom cannot infringe upon the conscience of others because it can be detrimental to their spiritual growth. Now, it's going to take us a long time to unpack all of what that really means. So this section on Christian liberty begins here, and it's going to go all the way through chapter 11, verse 1. So it contains the entirety of chapter 8, 9, and 10. Three chapters, an incredibly significant portion of this book of the Bible. So we have to really address this as it is written, and apply it to how it works in our lives today. But the subject of Christian liberty was first introduced back in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. I didn't put it on the screen, but here's what it says. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will be not mastered by anything. So when Paul says... All things are lawful for me. He is repeating back to the Corinthian their catchphrase, their slogan, the mantle by which they live their lives. Hey man, everything's lawful for me. So Paul repeats that back to them and says, oh, no, 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 no. But not all things are profitable. Not all things are constructive, even though you think you have freedom to do whatever you want to do. Paul goes on to say, not all, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So in repeating the slogan and adding to it that I will not be mastered by anything, it indicates that in Paul's mind, your perceived freedom has the potential to digress into sinful behavior and you need to take great caution with the liberty that you freely live in in your life because it may not be beneficial and it may turn into an area of sin that becomes a problem for you it becomes a tarnish on your testimony and it becomes a stumbling block to your brother and to your brothers and your sisters in the Lord so in answering the specific question about Christian liberty and here eating food offered to idols Paul will give a general and universal principle that can be applied to all the gray areas that aren't specifically forbidden, commended, or instructed in Scripture. Sometimes these are called doubtful behaviors, not necessarily gray behavior. So he states and explains the principle in all of chapter 8. He's going to illustrate the principle in chapter 9 through the middle of, verse, middle of chapter 10. And then he's going to apply the principle in the remaining verses of chapter 10. The principle that we're not going to read directly today is found in verse 9. Look forward in your passage of Scripture. And here's what verse 9 says. This is the principle about Christian liberty. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. That's the principle. Now we're going to begin to look at this principle 
which is broken up into three parts in chapter 8. We're only going to look at the first part of this principle because of the sake of time, and you'll thank me for that later. But we're going to read just the first three verses that explain the first part of three in this principle. So read with me in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 through 3. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is, he is not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Now, this again is a, is a somewhat challenging passage of Scripture to understand because culturally we don't identify with it. And Paul is using slogans and phrases that they use and he's using that against them and refuting their truth or their wisdom that they're living their lives by. But it can be understood and it can be explained in ways that I hope will be very obvious for us as we go through this. So Roman number 1 is the principle explained. This begins in verse 1. Now concerning things, sacrifice to idols. Now this takes quite a bit of explanation for us to have any ability of identifying with the group of people that Paul is addressing whose culture is just saturated with this idol worship and, and these food sacrifice to idols. So the phrase we see they're now concerning signals two things for us in this chapter 8. First of all, Paul is addressing a new subject matter now concerning, and it's moving away from marriage, which all of chapter 7 was about, into something else. The second thing that it tells us is that this is something that they have specifically asked Paul about, and the letter that they have written to him that he alludes to in chapter 7, verse 1, which we do not have a copy of. In fact, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians we don't have a copy of, and so our book of 1 Corinthians is technically 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is technically 3 Corinthians, because 1 Corinthians, as Paul wrote it, does no, no longer exist. So Paul wrote them a letter, they wrote a letter back, this is Paul's response to that letter, and here he is now moving on from marriage into something that they have asked him about, and here's the thing that they have asked him about, things sacrificed to idols. So these were food offerings symbolically presented in worship to the gods in whose temple these sacrifices were given. So the issue was eating food that had been offered in one of these sacrifices. So the Greeks and the Romans were polytheistic, meaning they worshipped many, many, many gods. In fact, historians can identify more than a dozen specific temples, but they also had group gods that they worshipped, and they also had Roman cult, excuse me, imperial Roman cult worship that was added into all of these other gods that they worshipped. So they had a god or a group of gods for virtually every circumstance, every need, and virtually any activity of consequence. They had a god of war, they had a goddess of love, they had a god of travel, they had a goddess of justice, and many, many others. So in addition to being polytheistic, they were also polydemonistic. What the heck is that? You make that word up? No, I actually read that in one of my commentaries. Polydemonistic, and that means they believed in many evil spirits. Now listen to this. 
We don't identify this with this because we don't live in a culture like this or in an age like this. So they believed that the air was filled with all sorts of evil spirits. Everywhere you went, all around you, there were evil spirits. So making food sacrifices, which were usually meat, was of great importance in regard to those who were polytheistic and polydemonistic. It was believed, listen to this, that the evil spirits were constantly trying to invade human beings and that the easiest way to do that was to attach themselves to food before it was eaten. That's what they lived. That's, that was their culture. So if, for example, in biblical days, you came across somebody who was literally demon-possessed, that would be proof that there are evil spirits all around us, and they are trying to get into you, and somehow they've been able to do that. So one of the ways of safeguarding against that was to offer meat, or possibly grains, to this little G-God and make a sacrifice so that God would protect them. So the only way the spirits could be removed from food was through it being sacrificed to one of these little G-gods. It's a crazy world they lived in. So the sacrifice, therefore, served two purposes. One, it gained the favor of God. And two, it cleansed the meat from demonic contamination so that when you ate that meat, you could not be invaded by one of the many, many evil spirits that were all around you in the air who were trying to get in to your body. So this was a common understanding of the Gentile population and culture. The Jews did not subscribe to that kind of thinking. And people who were saved from this Gentile background had this kind of culture ingrained in their understanding. So the sacrifices that were offered to these gods were divided into three parts. This helps us understand what Paul will continue to unpack for us throughout these chapters that relate to Christian liberty. So the first part, which was a very, very small part, was burned on an altar as the actual sacrifice. The second part was given as a payment to the priest who served in the temple. Now, since there were daily sacrifices made by many, many people, the priests did not need all of the meat or other things that were given to them as payment. And so what they would do is they would turn around and they would sell that excess in the marketplace. They would sell it and then marketers would sell that meat or that grain or whatever it was back to people who wanted to buy some of that product. So that meat, which had been sacrificed to a God was of high value because it was cleansed of evil spirits. So think about think about it like this. I don't know. I just thought it's so. If if you could be assured that you could go to the store and eat some meat and it didn't have any E. coli in it because it was sacrificed to the God of E. coli. You'd say, man, I want to get some of that. That's good stuff. I know I won't get sick from that. So this meat would often be eaten in the temple restaurants or in the temple rooms as a part of a family celebration of the individual 
who made the offering. So if I were to go make an offering to one of these little g-gods, a little bit of the offering would be burned up, some of it would be given to the priests as a payment, and the rest would be mine to do with what I wanted to do. So if there was going to be a big family celebration, a birthday, a wedding, some kind of a banquet, something going on, I would then take that meat, and I would use it in one of these temple rooms, and then I would invite my friends to come and be a part of that banquet feast. Aha, there's the problem. If you were a friend, a Christian friend of one of these individuals, and they invited you to this feast, what were you supposed to do? That was a real problem that these people were having. So these meals weren't just social. It wasn't just a wedding. It wasn't just a banquet. They often had a religious significance within the family celebration. And so most of these social occasions that took place involved pagan worship of some sort, and a great many of these festivities were held in temples. And so you might very well get an invitation from a friend who attended one of these temples, and they would say, in the name of whatever the temple God's name might be, you are invited to attend this banquet on such and such a time and such and such a date. So you weren't just being invited to a banquet by Joe, you were being invited by to a banquet by the God of Joe, and there was some religious association in that feast. So as a result of that, it was almost impossible for a believer who had any personal contact with Gentiles to avoid facing the question of eating food that was a part of an idol sacrifice. So since idol food was served at these social occasions, a Christian who was invited to such an occasion either had to make excuses for why I could not come, which you can't do indefinitely, or he had to go and be a part of that and willingly and knowingly eat food that was part of of an idol sacrifice. So there were some Gentile believers who refused to attend those feasts or to buy meat that they knew was to be sacrificed to an idol because it brought back memories of their own pagan experience and it created fear in their hearts about being reassociated with the pagan religious expression that they have been freed from. So other Christians were not bothered by this at all. Meat was meat, food was food. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, right? What's the big deal? Well, Paul goes on to talk about that in greater detail. These people knew that pagan deities did not really exist, that evil spirits did not really contaminate the food. They were mature and well-grounded in God's truth, and their consciences were clear in that matter. And Paul gave, excuse me, they gave Paul three reasons why they felt like they could exercise liberty in this area. We're going to talk about those in just a minute. So, Paul's response to the reasons that they gave to him were directed to the group of mature believers who were flaunting their freedom. But here's what's interesting, is that his response is centered on the needs of of the less mature group. Let me rephrase that. You feel like you have incredible liberty to do this thing. Paul answers your question not on the basis of that liberty, but on the basis of the needs of the people who would be potentially affected by this expression of liberty. So the first reason that Paul gives for exercising freedom is summarized 
for us in the middle part of verse 1. We have knowledge. Now, we're not going to get to 2 and 3. That comes later because there's just not enough time. But this is what they are saying to Paul. Paul, what about food sacrificed to idol? After all, we have knowledge. That's what they're saying. This was another Corinthian catchphrase. It was their position of wisdom and superiority. And it was likely what they were saying to Paul in this letter. And the statement that they had knowledge was true, but it was also steeped in pride and in arrogance. And it was filled with an egotistical position that they were holding against other believers. It reflected their feeling of superiority over others who did not share in their sense of freedom. So they had more than enough knowledge to understand God's Word and to know that pagan gods and idols were not real and that food that was sacrificed to them was still just food. They knew that eating the food could not contaminate them spiritually, that it had no effect on their Christian lives. So they felt totally free to eat whatever they wanted, no matter what others thought. And that's the position of license. Hey, I can do whatever I want to do, and I don't really care how it might affect somebody else because I'm free to do this. And if you don't like it, you don't understand it, you don't agree with it, that's your problem, not mine. Well, Paul gives great caution in this position of knowledge. This caution that we see here is going to set the tone for much of what Paul is going to say all throughout these three chapters. Here's what he begins with. Knowledge puffs up. They say, we have knowledge Paul says in response to that, verse 1c, knowledge makes arrogant. Now the word literally in the Greek means knowledge puffs up. So they're saying we have knowledge and Paul says, yeah, but knowledge makes you arrogant. You need to be very, very careful about this knowledge that you have. This is one of the in words within Roman world of that day to be wise, to be a man of philosophy, to possess great wisdom. And Paul will continue to use this word against them because they're using it as a means of pride, not, a, not as a means of understanding how this knowledge they have is to be lived out from their lives. So they viewed themselves as a people of wisdom and knowledge, and it created a self-righteous pride that was creating strife and division within the church, going all the way back to the earlier examination of Scripture, where they were, we're talking about their being ingrained with worldly wisdom and philosophy, and there were as many as 55, 50 identifiable Greek trains of thought or truth. And so they're all arguing about which is superior and which is more truthful and which knowledge is, is, the, is the best. So this is their position. So Paul takes their self-righteous posture and he challenges it. They say, we have knowledge. Paul says, knowledge makes arrogant. And then letter D in verse 1, but love edifies. So Paul says, knowledge makes arrogant, but love builds up. Those believers who were flaunting their freedom were mature in knowledge, but they were not mature in love. All they were concerned about is themselves. Love edifies or builds up others, and that edification they did not possess. They were solid in doctrine, but weak in love. They were strong in self-love, 
by exerting their freedom, but they were weak and brotherly love and considering how that freedom might potentially affect other believers. So while knowledge of God's Word is extremely important, because after all, it's impossible to believe or to obey that which is not known, but knowledge of God's Word is not enough. It is essential, but it is not sufficient. By itself, knowledge makes arrogant. And this is why Paul says, but love edifies. To have love but no knowledge is unfortunate. And to have knowledge and no love is equally tragic. Among the many spiritual problems of the Corinthian Christians was arrogance. And this is a word that Paul will use against them six times in these three chapters. They were proud and self-satisfied and they had knowledge with no love. Now why am I saying that? Am I making that up? Am I just trying to pick a fight with somebody who loves their Christian freedom? No, because what we read as we continue through 1 Corinthians, which is con- continuous through verse 1-1 all the way to the end of the book, Paul's going to tell them this in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now Paul will make specific application of a different part of Christian living, but it's the same truth that has to be applied here as it relates to Christian freedom, applied to eating food that was, a, that was sacrificed to idols, or any of these other gray areas that are not specifically forbidden or commended or instructed in Scripture. Love is what makes the difference. Knowledge that idols were not real and that idol food was not spiritually corrupted was correct knowledge and it was helpful knowledge, but by itself it made those who had it self-focused to the exclusion of other people. I am focused on my liberty, and if that's a problem for you, that's your problem. That's not my problem. My friend, that is not love. They saw the truth as it applied to them and to nothing else. They were insensitive as to how it might apply to those who did not have the same knowledge. They did not yet understand the fullness of God's Word, that idols didn't really exist, and food sacrificed to idols was still just food, and that eating food sacrificed to idols wasn't going to spiritually defile you. They hadn't arrived there yet. And you beating them over the head of the two-by-four, insisting on your freedom to do that, whether you understand it or not, that's wrong. It's a wrong perspective. Because that knowledge has to be applied in love. Now, flaunting this liberty or this knowledge could potentially offend other believers. Now, I wonder what Jesus might have said about such a thing. Well, guess what? He did. Here's what he says in Matthew 18.6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble... Now, let's pause real quick. Jesus had brought a little child up onto his lap and said, for the kingdom of heaven is like a child, and you must become like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. So here he has this little child, this kid on his knee, 
And he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So what is the potential impact of our flaunting liberty going to have on the lives of others? And are we really and truly free from a concern about how it might potentially affect others? Or should we listen to Paul's caution about knowledge needs to be couched in love and Jesus' warning that to cause one of these who have faith in me to stumble is a bad, bad thing. So the truly well-rounded Christian has the ability to understand biblical truth and they also have the ability to to relate them to people, to himself, and to others. So truth is truth, right? And I can apply that truth to myself, but I also must relate that truth to others. It's not just about me. So he has knowledge. He who has knowledge plus love is a good place to be. Knowledge plus love is the medium through which truth is to be communicated. So here's what we got to do. We got to take the two by four off of our shoulder and stop trying to beat liberty into the lives of those who are less mature in whatever that gray area might be. And instead of having a two by four, we need to replace that with love. This is what Paul would say to the church at Ephesus. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up, grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. So knowledge by itself brings arrogance, not maturity. Division in the church may be caused by problems of behavior in the area of Christian liberty as well as faulty doctrine. When some believers insist on exercising their liberty without regard or for the feelings and standards of fellow believers, the church is weakened and frequently divided. Now let me give you an example of this. Let's suppose... That God has called you to be a missionary in some other part of the world. You know what this mission agency is going to do when you apply to them to be sent over to some remote place? They are going to say, here's what we got to do. You need some cultural training. You need to understand what is going to be offensive to these people. What is going to create a barrier in your ability to share the gospel? And while you don't have to compromise your convictions, you need to be aware of how your actions might prevent you from helping others understand who God is and desire to know more about this God of whom you speak. So, for example, in some cultures, you reach out with a friendly handshake and they say, don't do that. That's offensive. That offends me. I, I will give a side shoulder hug to many of the women in our church because it's just a sign of affection, a sign of, of Christian love, right? You do that in some cultures and you're going to be accused of immorality. They're going to say, that guy, something wrong with him, he needs to go away. We don't want, we don't want to be around him. So if you're going to go overseas, you have to know something about the culture in which you're going to minister and serve so that you don't create barriers and the ability to share the gospel. So when we insist on exercising our liberty without considering the feelings or the beliefs of others, it can create problems. So what Paul is saying is this, love edifies. The exercise of liberty and love is going to build up your brothers because you're not beating them over the head with a two-by-four. You're helping them understand truth in love. 
love edifies, and the knowledgeable believer without the edification of love is not as mature as he is inclined to think. Now, Paul explains what he means as he contrasts knowledge and love. He says knowledge is incomplete. Verse 2, If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he is not yet known as he ought to know. Now, that is filled with profound truth. Let me reread that. If anyone supposes that he knows anything... In other words, if you profess to be knowledgeable, then he has not yet known as he ought to know. So the truly edified person has some idea of what he has yet to learn. They know they have not yet arrived. Here's an explanation for that. Someone has defined knowledge this way. It is the process of passing from the unconscious state of ignorance to the conscience state of ignorance. <laughs> when my 20-year-old decided that he wanted to get married and it was clear there was no stopping him, we gave him our blessing, but I said to him, I want you to understand, you don't know what you do not yet know. And he had to think about that and he kind of looked at me with puzzled eyes and he says, well, okay, I, all right, whatever that means. Well, a year later... He says, you know, I'm starting to understand what it means, what you meant when you said you don't, you do not know what you do not know. So the wise person who exercises a mature life of love knows that he does not yet know. Ignorance does not know that it does not know. True knowledge does not know and knows that it does not know. <laughs> like a riddle, right? <laughs> so knowledge by itself is incomplete because knowledge is rooted in love. This is what Paul is going to drill down into the lives of the Corinthians. Look what it says here in verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So true knowledge is knowing God and knowing the love of God. True knowledge is not your understanding of Christian liberty and the gray areas that are not specifically condemned or commended or instructed in Scripture. True knowledge is knowing God and being known by Him. Well, doesn't that not change our understanding what knowledge really is? It takes it away from what would be considered academic or intellectual, and it moves it into a place of experience, and that experience is rooted in love. What we know about God causes us to love Him, to love what He loves, and it provides a desire to please Him. And our love for God is possible only because He first loved us, and our knowledge of God, our love for God, and God's love for us ought to be the defining factor in how we relate to one another. Not in the exercise of liberty couched in knowledge, but love. We love God because He first loved us. I love you because God loves me and God loves you. I know something about God's love because of the way He loves me. And I know that God loves you the same way. That is the root of knowledge. Knowledge is, is important. It's incredibly important. 
But as everything else, without love, it is nothing. So when Paul, what Paul is doing here is showing the incorrect, pri- incorrect priority of the knowledgeable Corinthian Christian, which was their knowledge, their sense of liberty, their desire to do what they're going to do, regardless of how it affects somebody else. They're more concerned with their own knowledge rather than loving their less knowledgeable brothers. So love for others, listen to this, love for others sets the limits of Christian liberty because liberty is rooted in love. So if I felt like I had the liberty to go down to Joe's Bar and Grill and slam him down on the corner of the bar, I really ought to be concerned about how that might negatively affect others, my witness for Christ, their desire to know something about this Christ that I profess to know and teach and serve. So I need to stay away from Joe's Bar and Grill because I don't want my liberty to become a stumbling block for somebody else. That's the essence of what Paul is saying here. You may feel completely free in some area of your life that would be considered a gray area, but how does you living out your flaunted freedom potentially affect a brother who may not yet share in your idea or sense of freedom? So love is the key to behavior. Knowing what is not forbidden is not enough. Knowledge is rooted in love for God and love for others and helping them in their own journey. Paul would say to the church of Philippi, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, which means you've got to look out for your own interests, but don't do it to the exclusion of others. Also for the interest of others. So our personal Christian liberty shouldn't be our only interest, but also how this liberty potentially affects others. And so when we live our lives this way, we are exhibiting a mature, loving concern for others that grasps the idea that knowledge is nothing. Knowledge is rooted in love. Now we're going to continue to talk about the other two parts of this principle We have knowledge, and Paul's going to go through and answer their statements and then turn them upside down to show them that love is superior to their knowledge. And then we'll continue to look on how that's illustrated and applied in the weeks ahead. Let's pray together. Father, we are so